Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality, helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and, and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in, in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing and they wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of Climate Consulting. In this one, I speak to Nick Kent, founder of Alpha FMC, the global financial services consultancy with over 900 consultants supporting clients across 16 offices spanning the UK, Europe, North America and Asia Pacific. I started my consulting career in financial services. And so Alpha was a name that I'd seen a lot in the market. And having watched their phenomenal growth from afar, it was hugely exciting to get the chance to sit down with Nick and hear his and the Alpha story firsthand. But while Nick's story with Alpha ended very successfully, that's not how it started. And it was actually a shock redundancy from Accenture that led him to launch the business something that we talk about in detail in today's conversation. As the saying goes, though, when one door closes, another opens. And in Nick's case, this was the catalyst that led him to launching Alpha. Fast forward, and the firm's grown to the scale it is today. It's been through not one but two PE investment rounds, and in 2017, it IPO'd on London's AIM market. With so much experience in the consulting industry and a phenomenal journey building Alpha FMC, 
we had a lot to cover. And I must say, we managed to pack a whole ton into this conversation, including the story about Nick's shock redundancy and how this difficult time led him to launching the business. The fundamental principles that Alpha FMC was built on and how these led Nick and the team to have the success that they have had as a business. And that journey from a private business to private equity to IPO, we talk about the ups, the downs, and everything in between. Whether you are thinking of launching your own consultancy, or maybe you're running a firm or a practice area right now and want to learn the secrets of one of the best from our industry, I know that you are going to get so much from this conversation. So with all of that said, please enjoy today's conversation with Nick Kent. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. Yeah, pleasure to be with you. So really looking forward to this one, obviously introduced by former guest, and I know a good friend of yours, Jonathan Davis. And I have watched Alpha from afar during my consulting career and, and since then. And so it's fantastic to have you on the show to, to talk all about the journey from start to finish. But for our listeners who maybe aren't so familiar with yourself or Alpha, it'd be brilliant if you could give a background on who you are and how you got to where you are today, Nick. Very briefly on ancient history there, I guess I started with interest in IT back in school days in the late 70s, would you believe, built with my physics teacher at home computer and all that kind of stuff. So I went into computer science at York. After that, went into a kind of IT-based custom development software package and consulting business. Doesn't exist anymore. BIS was its name. And in that, got involved in custom developing systems for clients in financial services and asset management. After about six years, left there to join what was then Anderson Consulting just before manager grade at that point in the financial services business of, of Anderson, what is now obviously Accenture. Stayed there for quite a while through to partner, uh, was partner of a number of years. Yeah, we had the IPO. And then somewhat shockingly, and I will come back to this, was made redundant from that in 2003 and had this professional personal crisis, what am I going to do now, which led to the founding of Alpha and pretty much been there ever since as the original founder through our growth as a private company owned by me, then through private equity and, and finally IPO. I should probably by the way say that I am now not involved in Alpha. So my last board meeting at Alpha was back in September, which means that as of November, I'm no longer an inside person. I no longer have inside information. So I can safely not get you into trouble or me into trouble by talking about Alpha today and think there's some kind of inside information. So yeah, I, I have no up-to-date information from Alpha other than public sources that uh, you and any any listeners may have. Well, thank you firstly for that caveat, Nick. And, and yes, that does make me feel better. And, and I think our listeners as well. So tons in there to, to cover. And, and you mentioned about your time at Accenture and, and the redundancy and the challenges that period caused for you and, and that sort of personal professional crisis you explained it. If you're happy to share, I'd love to start there and understand what led to the redundancy and, and how you worked through that afterwards? Because I know that was an integral part of what led to Alpha, but I think it's not something that you get many people talking about. So I'd love to hear if you could explain what led up to it and yeah, the journey you went on to come out the other side. It was a huge shock at the time. It was only a few weeks before I was meeting with the head of financial services saying, Nick, you'll see you as a future leadership of this firm and it's all seemed to be going well so it just came completely out of the blue as part of a broader partner cull basically that was going on at the time we talked about why i was picked or not but but a real shock so yeah it was difficult to come to terms it makes you question 
all kinds of things about people, relationships, you know, and whether it was even the right career for me, whether I enjoyed it or not. And it was an opportunity to really think about things. And very often I found things in my life, not just professional things, that things at the time I thought were the worst thing that could ever possibly happen to me, which this was <laughs> this was one turned out to be the absolutely best thing that could have happened uh, with hindsight. But I certainly didn't feel like that at the time. Yeah, I can imagine. I, I didn't realize it was it was so much of a, a sort of shock. Like you say, if you're going from a meeting with the head of financial services saying you're the future and then three weeks later you are the past, that's going to hit quite hard. I, if it is helpful for our listeners, Nick, you mentioned around the why, is that something, because I'm thinking particularly for our listeners who, who may be partners, who, who may or may not be having had this same situation happen, is the why relevant to then how much of an impact and sort of how you dealt with it afterwards? Maybe there's some relevance. Let's all quickly cover it then. So I was the client partner for one of the big investment banks in Europe. We were quite busy. We'll come on to the Accenture IPO, I think, a little bit later. And we finally thought with an IPO, the banks would always talk about reciprocity. You know, when are you going to give us some business? And we keep giving all these big contracts. And we thought this is fantastic. We've actually going to be giving them some distribution business of our IPO. Unfortunately, the bank I was working for felt slighted that they didn't get enough of our stock to distribute and they kicked us all out barring one project which wasn't one of mine that was one of the other partners so i literally had no suddenly had no client now that wasn't cold didn't happen straight away but of course at that time you know how it's it was a funny thing how do you decide within a big consulting firm how do you allocate which partners work on which clients how do you figure that all out and of course all the other big clients had all got partners already so we had the idea that because i had some asset management experience i would try and set up an asset management practice which we never had before so really that's what i started and we i thought we did pretty well we had eight clients i think we had one big project whatever but when the, the cull was done they did it strictly on revenue per partner and i think i wasn't at that stage, you know, certainly seven of the eight clients were small, so it wasn't deemed enough. So I think that's why I got picked. But of course, uh, you know, hindsight's an interesting thing. We now got a thousand man business from that niche that was viewed to be too small back by Accenture in those days. So yeah, interesting how history proves a point. Oh, definitely. And, and I want to come on to how that period and that redundancy led to Alpha, because like you say, very often, and for anyone who, who may have had the same thing happen to them more recently, those downtimes can feel very you know, all-encompassing and like there is no out. And I think the story we'll explore with your own journey shows that sometimes these, what can seem like negative experiences can lead to huge positives. You mentioned it there, and I, I'm keen to move fairly quickly to Alpha, but I do. there'll be no good place to ask about this once we do go into your journey building the business and growing the team. The Accenture IPO is something I was curious on because, as you say, you were a partner there. And I know when we spoke ahead of this, you you mentioned actually you voted against it, which I think, well, I don't know that many Accenture partners, but feels on the face of it quite unusual when there is quite a bit of potential upside to come from an IPO. And obviously, you then took Alpha to an IPO, which we may come on to a bit later, Nick. But I, I'd be interested why you did vote against the Accenture IPO and and if there's anything for any of our listeners who may be going through that similar process that they can apply with their own thinking, what was it that made you say, no, this isn't right for us as a, as a business? I think there's probably a difference between going from a partnership model to an IPO. So it wasn't just an IPO, it was a partnership to corporate to IPO, as opposed to a corporate changing its, its structure into IPO. I think those two are probably quite different. But in the case of Accenture, I felt we were letting down the people, really. You know, the up-and-coming 
people who you know who've been working all those years to make partner and all the benefits of working in a partnership and frankly the the, the financial rewards of, of being a partner and effectively what happened was that you know all that future income stream is then capitalized and the very people who'd had years of fantastic incomes as a partner then took away the bulk of the capital as a result leaving the next generation i think shortchanged which would seem very unfair and unjust to me i also felt that that whole motivation and drive to make partner was a, was a fundamental part of how we got such good people and i felt that wouldn't be such a carrot we wouldn't be there and we would lose out on the former piece i feel vindicated i think that was true but on the latter i think i've been proved utterly wrong because clearly accenture has gone from strength to strength great people super business you know wish i hadn't sold my shares quite so quickly now so yeah it, it was principally a people thing i just felt bad for that next generation not say there weren't some problems with the old one. I think it worked pretty well. There were some problems, but I think, and this maybe is relevant for other people in partnerships and how they find it and people coming up to partner. The thing that I think Accenture certainly what, and Sync Consulting has got wrong is really about expectation management for the partners. So literally it was a genuine partnership. So you took the profits at the end of the year, divided it up by the number of units issued to the partners, and, and, and that's what you got. Although there was a sophisticated model about how the timing of the cash worked, obviously, because you didn't wait until after the money came in to actually get it. And what happened is that the sort of leadership partners who designed the model each year, they looked at what we think we're going to make this year. Okay, well, how many partners can we afford without decreasing the partner take? Because nobody wants to be the partners that presides over a period where partner incomes are falling, right? It makes it very unpopular with all your colleagues. But the trouble was every year we would blow away the budgets growing by 30%, 40%, 50%. So guess what? We had incorrectly reduced and held back partners who frankly could have been partners of that business and actually ended up growing and growing and growing. It was crazy what the new partners were making. So the jump that I made from being an associate, oh, associate partner, that was like we introduced that, again, allegedly not to increase the time to partner, but guess what? That added at least another two years in the run-up to making partner. And my take-home pay was probably from associate partner to partner was something like a six-fold increase. Wow. It was, it was ridiculous. Because of, and it was never planned that way, but it just it just became a ratchet each year of higher and higher expectations. And it was too much. And we should have had far more partners and more sensible kind of levels of remuneration. So, yeah, I think that but we could have fixed that, I feel, without having gone down the corporate route. But anyway, the rest is history. That's what that's, that's why. And again, it didn't make some very popular. I don't know if that had any impact on me being picked, but I wasn't particularly popular. Another thing that was going on at the time was shift consultant firms often you know have these kind of this is who we are as an identifier like sometimes over complicate things other than just getting on helping clients and we had the time it was, it was a big thing going on of we don't sell work because we know about the industry we sell work because we know about processes we know about technology whatever it might be and that was kind of a little bit the opposite of what my clients were telling me that you know if you turned up at a an asset manager or an investment bank and you didn't know how equities worked you know that that really wasn't going to work so i was saying look we need to look after this industry side much more strongly making myself a bit unpopular with the then fashion at that time which was all about defocus on industry so yeah i was perhaps never quite cut out for the longer term maybe at extension well i th- i think some really interesting areas and I know we're going to come on to the principles that you built Alpha FMC on, and, and that people piece I know was a big one. So we, we, we're probably going to come back to that. But I, I think Nick, that nicely takes us to 
actually the the founding of the business and obviously part well I say part of it was forced upon you because you had to find a new thing to do but I think there's also an interesting question and I, I like to ask this for anyone who's thinking of launching a consulting business because very often you know someone might be listening to this and thinking Nick well you you know your salary increased sixfold you you know you obviously had a lot of money in the bank you could afford to do this but at the same time you know your lifestyle increases with your income and suddenly having zero income is quite a shock. So it's still quite a big step to go and launch a business. And I'd love to understand, and I know we're going back a bit, but I'd love to understand what led you to decide, actually, no, I'm going to launch Alpha FMC. I'm not going to go and build EY's asset management practice or KPMG's. What was it that led you to launch the business? Well, first of all, I thought, do I want to do consulting at all? So I really thought, should I do something completely different, property development or whatever, you know, just something completely and utterly different. And kept coming back to, well, this is the thing I know. And I do really like consulting. The thing that had put me off was my latter-day experiences. And by the way, Accenture was a great company. I had a great time over the many years. It did become a bit painful towards the end, but you know, great company. And I had some really good times. So I made some great friends. So I decided that consulting really was, it was stupid. And not, you know, if I was going to keep working and I couldn't really retire at 41 or whatever it was at that time, consulting was the thing to do. I really couldn't face the idea of going one of the big four as was then you know i guess i've just been but felt i've been burnt a bit by that i didn't really want to go back then one of the things that maybe hadn't worked quite as well i think accenture got into a little bit where sometimes it felt more that you're competing with your colleagues than collaborating and helping each other and that's never a great place to be so yeah just started thinking about you know what were the alternatives i was also very lucky in that the client I was working with, the one large client that we got, told Accenture that unless I would stay managing the project, then they could take the rest of the team. Thank you very much. So um, effectively, I was I think I was only about two days a week, I think, on that project. So I effectively was given a, a need to set up a company to do that role and effectively carved out my partner you near know, day rate, effectively was then paid to me instead of paid to Accenture, which was which was very nice and very kind of them to <laughs> to do that also the other clients all said well look we were kind of in the middle of something what can we do so they were all quite keen to keep going with me rather than with Accenture Accenture knew they didn't have the skill that's the whole point they didn't want to do asset management anymore so didn't have the skills to do it so yeah I was kind of a little bit given a bit of a gift of a business if I'm honest I'd always fancied running a business in fact I did the economics A level and was quite liked the idea of you know having a small business so the only question was how big it would be, what we would aim to do, how would we define ourselves? And I think probably the first thoughts were more lifestyle kind of oriented. And it was probably at the end of year one of got going, there probably was a question mark of how serious is this? Is this a lifestyle business for a few of us? Or are we going to try and build this into a proper business? So it's really the, the day one got going quite easily. Then there was a decision point after that of, is this just for fun or are we going to try and do something with it? And we decided to do something more with it at the end of an end of year one. I think really interesting story. And, and Nick, I'm going to have to ask you about that end of year one, because like you say, it sounds like in a really positive way, that was sort of a soft landing out of Accenture. You had a, a good stable of clients. You had, you know, it sounds like there was a few of you working in the team. What made you decide to turn it from a lifestyle into a, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but a proper business and scale it? And just because there'll be others listening who are having those conversations, do you remember any of those questions you may have asked 
yourselves as a leadership team, maybe, you know, yourself and, and your partner from your home life. What was it that made you, yeah, decide, yeah, we're going to do this? Probably a number of things. So I, in day one, so in the first year, there was really two, there were really only two of us for most of that first year. So it's quite, quite small. Me, and in fact, he was working as a contractor, not as an employee. But probably one of the key things that happened during that time is a number of my old team at Accenture who came to me and said, you know, what you're doing looks really fun and interesting. I'd be interested in coming on board. And I guess I hadn't really thought that some people with that caliber, you know, really amazingly good people who I love working with would take that risk on me, you know, and a fledgling new business when they were doing very well at Accenture and on a good progression there. So I was a little bit obviously delighted and proud that they would trust me with their careers that we would go and do that. And I thought, wow, that's quite something. If, we, if people of that caliber are willing to come on board with this, it's really got some legs. We could do something. So, yeah, we ran through well, two in particular of us, myself and one of the other senior guys, a chap called Nick Baker. We, we kind of worked up various different business plans together of what the business might look like and how we would recruit, what we'd be focusing on. And it all looked pretty exciting and interesting, had various conversations with clients. We thought the demand was there, talked to more of people we knew in the industry who, you know, would they be potentially interested in coming on board? And it just seemed to me there was a good opportunity there. So, um, yeah, literally, I think it was literally about at the end of year one to the day, we said, let's do this. And we started more aggressively to actually recruit people in an employee model. Nick joined as a director of the company at that point and had a shareholding. So so I cut him into the equity at that point. And that was really when we were taking it more seriously. Like I say, it sounds like a number of fortuitous circumstances came together and, and it sounded like the right decision. If this is relevant or interesting, let's explore it. If it's not, stop me. But Obviously, you get to that end of year one, you know, you, you've probably got some money in the bank from the clients you work with. But as we all know, consultants are not cheap people to employ. And so you're going to take on a, you, you took on a number you mentioned sort of end of year one, start of year two. How did you approach that funding? Did you just have a runway and back yourself to sell the projects? Was there some investment? How did you fund that first stage? Because going out on your own is is one thing, committing is another. Having then or or having the confidence to pay people's salaries is is quite another again. How how did you approach that? Well, I had funded the business. I put a bunch of cash in the business right at the outset, which covered mm. all that initial in the, the initial recruiting. So yeah, we had a bit of a, a you know a sort of some money in the tank. But to be honest, after that, we did it out of cash flow. Which you know, looking back, you know, we could probably have grown more quickly if we hadn't grown out of cash flow. And probably you know, looking back, I think I'm probably you know, it doesn't maybe sound like it was doing all this but probably a little bit risk averse as, as a natural outlook on life so yeah i was always keen to feel that i could see where the work was coming from before we were taking on people and uh, i think that meant that probably you know we grew pretty quickly it could have been even quicker if i if i'd taken that break off i think so yeah very much out of cash flow that changed you know and we'll talk a bit later you know i guess about our pe era and maybe one of the things that we learned from them was i think to overcome my natural risk aversion. <laughs> and they pushed us hard and they said, look, we can see there's an opportunity in this country or in that area that you guys are talking about. Just go and hire a team of people and, and do it. And maybe one time out of five, it won't work because it's always difficult, you know, recruiting people, finding the right team or whatever. But the other four will more than make up for that, you know, the, the mistake that you make. And that wasn't the model and the mindset I brought to the business. 
but they brought that mindset in and it was successful. And we, we grew quicker under PE, certainly in terms of headcount growth massively than in you know, when we were fully private. Like you say, we, it was on the agenda to talk about, Nick. And, and actually, I might bring us forward to it because I think it flows nicely from what you, you were describing there. And, and that risk aversion piece is, is really interesting because so I run a business as well and I have exactly the same feeling as you. You know, I, I like to know that there's enough money in the bank to pay everyone for a fairly long period of time and and see where that work's coming from. And the PE model, while obviously it's based on growing profits, that there is an element of you've, you've got to spend it to make it. The way you just described it, your PE backers obviously were, were able to sort of help you with that mindset. But actually, I'm sure you had to do some soul searching and thinking on your own to get comfortable with that approach. And how did you go about that? And do you remember some of the kind of journey you went on? Was it weeks, months, years? What led you to say, actually, yeah, we'll look at PE and then get comfortable with that model, which is moving from a, a cash flow driven model to something that might leave you with a negative on the PL for a few months, but has upside at the back end? So this was how long in? So this is about 10 years in at this point. We had grown to, I think we're about 100 people of which 80 well 80 employees and 20 long-term contractors working for us for a variety of reasons that they want prefer that model and the employee model so about 100 people or so and i've been doing it for 10 years i in the meantime got remarried lisa had uh, stopped working she was working for investment uh, bank she'd stopped to look after our young child so i was kind of looking at yeah look i, I have a slight feeling that the 10 years in a role is maybe enough you know, that after a while, not in sense of interest, because I was loving it. Every minute of the job was was fabulous. It was a it was an incredible experience, great journey. So I wasn't bored of it. But do you, after a time, is it healthy to move on and do something a little bit different? So I had that in my mind. There also comes the situation, as any small business owner will tell you, that the value of the business was growing quite quickly. Not only as the business grows, but your effective kind of PE ratio that you could apply to that profit stream grows as you get bigger as well as it becomes more stable. So as a proportion of my net worth, the value of Alpha was getting pretty high. Uh, and, and the next generation, I think they were looking at where does their shareholding. So I had already for a while, because every, every single employee at that time was a shareholder. So I was quite keen. One of the founding principles was, again, sharing the reward. And maybe we skipped it. We should maybe come back to some of those things. I don't yeah, know. definitely. Later, everyone's a shareholder. But it was how do we move from, I think I was 60% owner at the time. How do we move into me being a minority shareholder? How do we incentivize the next generation of leaders of the business and so on? And we were looking for you know, a way to do that. So one, we looked at you know, a trade sale effectively. Was, and we kind of imagined that there would be a, an outcome. But when we looked around, it's kind of the whole thing. You know, I would never want to belong to a club that would have me as a member. We kind of didn't find a consulting firm that we liked and that would felt suit our culture. We had quite a defined culture, I think, and that, that would suit us and the people who would also be interested in us. Though, so we just didn't really find. We had a few good offers business but nothing i felt comfortable with and of course the anathema would have been to go and become part of the big four we have had over the years many approaches from the big four including accenture multiple times but hang on that is where we all come from guys we just <laughs> that would be selling us back into where we came from so that, that could never possibly work 
PE, I didn't know much about PE, so we went on a, a kind of education exercise of teaching ourselves about PE. Obviously, it has a little bit of a bad reputation when you think about it. You hear all the stories, but we said we wanted to really hear it firsthand, so we talked to a lot of people who'd been through that PE journey. We made a point of talking to people who'd been in it where the wheels had come off as well and things hadn't ended happily to see what you know what was their learning lessons, where it had gone wrong or whatever. I think we came to the conclusion that that PE was a better a better home for us. And I think one of the things that's different between PE in a consulting business and PE in some of the different kind of stories, product businesses and the like, is that as a people business, there's only so much they can do because at the end of the day, the assets are the business are the people. So if they wanted to do something with the business that would not really have the backing of the key people of the business, they could kill it. Yeah, you know, offhand, and no buyer. If they wanted to try and sell us to, to an unwelcome, you know, somebody we didn't want to be sold to, no buyer is going to look at that. Talk to the senior management team and say they're not on board with this, and and but go ahead. So I think as a people business, you do have that backstop, a little bit of more control than you would if you're in a product business, where they, where if they don't like what you're doing, they can kick out the entire management team, bring a new management in, and you know, without stopping making widgets or whatever it is. So I think that was one of the things that comforted us about PE. And secondly, we we kind of liked the people, you know, we got on with the people and certainly the good stories, you know, had a great run with PE and it, it met the needs. So we liked that and we felt it was the best way of keeping alpha USPs together and going. And I think that was proved to be the case. I really like the the approach you had to that learning you talked about and actually asking some of the people where it didn't work as well as some of those who did. I think history has a winner's bias and it can be quite easy to to talk to those who've had something go positively or successfully and sometimes miss the blind spot. So you highlighted one there, Nick, but I'm just going to ask because I've not heard many other people follow that approach. This is going back a bit, but do you remember any of the other sort of big learnings that some of those failed deals that you, you know, some of those failed relationships where you spoke to the people involved sort of highlighted as potential risks that either you then mitigated or for anyone listening, they should be aware of? I think your point around the nature of our business is a really fundamental one. But were there any others that came out of that kind of research phase that helped you in selecting that first PE firm? Yeah, yeah, there probably is a few. So I think one of the things is, don't be greedy. As a management team, clearly people are buying you off your future earnings potential. That's why they're buying, because they want to, you know, three or four times money in a few years. That's what they're really looking to do. In the light of that, given how much you'll get for the business, will be dependent on what your earnings is. And I think don't be greedy. Don't dig it up and set too high an expectation. It may well seem good at the time. You may well increase your day one payout, but that could store up problems. So I think we were very realistic and honest in our assessments of where we thought the business was going. And I think, again, that was helpful that, that it got us off to a good start, that when you, you see yourself meeting or beating the, the kind of plans, then the P guys tend to relax and things go more easily. So I think that's one. I think we were, again, perhaps from our ethos, the whole culture we brought along, we were very keen to bring the team along with us. So there had to be a period, of course, where that, it was secret, where we were thinking about this, talking to people and not telling people. But once we decided that we thought that was a pretty likely thing, we started to bring people in to know what we were doing. And again, conscious to make sure that as a people business, that we were giving people a good deal, you know, that they were not losing out. And again, maybe that's another learning from the extension that we felt that that was not going to upset people. I, I didn't want to be one of, you know, the sort of fat cat who wandered off with all the cash. And then people would, you know, not 
respect or going to like me afterwards. And that was important for, for me. And I think that, again, has, has been very, seemed to go quite well. I think people feel that we, it was the right thing for the business and the right thing for them personally, as well as, you know, obviously it solved our shareholding, moving the, sh- the shareholding on to the next generation. You've answered one of the questions I was going to ask about how you brought those learnings from the Accenture IPO experience into the PE. And obviously, there was an IPO that we'll come on to later, but actually that that sort of process. I, I'm i curious, because you touched on it in terms of the, the explanation around PE and how actually if your original investor wanted to sell you to someone, you, you weren't happy with that. That's not something they could do. I'm conscious that your first investors, the first PE backers did sell Alpha FMC. And, and I, I understand it was a little unexpected. So I'd be interested to understand a bit more about that part of the journey and really how you and the management team overcame it to keep the business moving forward. Because I imagine it was quite a shock. You can tell me though. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, it was definitely a surprise. We had not thought of that that was a, you know, at all a realistic possibility. Perhaps that was again, naivety, lack, lack of understanding of the of the PE business. So we were the first investment in a new fund. So the PE business already had other funds. They were setting setting a new fund. We were the first or second business of getting out into that fund. And it hadn't occurred to me. But of course, if you're a PE manager, what you want to do is you want to show amazing returns in your early stage to get more people to come in and want to be part of that fund. And we were doing, we were shooting the lights out. It was all going really well. So they said after two years, that, and we dub, I think we doubled, we'd gone to 200 people, I think, at that point wow. in a couple of years. And they said, great, we'd like to sell you now because we want to show what amazing P managers we are. Uh, blah, blah. And we, we were just shocked. Another thing we perhaps didn't do with hindsight, it's my doing, I, I screwed this one up, was that we put it, when we did the deal with the first P firm, we put this ratchet in because we felt they were taking quite a lot of the upside of, of the business as they do. And so we put the ratchet in, in that once we had met their targets for us, anything thereafter came 75% to us and only 25% to them. And we thought it was a great deal, you know, because they got everything they wanted. They got their doubling. We got ours and a higher share of the of the earnings effectively after we met their targets, we were over that. We'd already met that hurdle and we were kind of into that territory. But the trouble is that gave them less incentive to hold on to us because suddenly their level of returns were reducing because they, we were kicked into this new arrangement. So that probably, with hindsight, didn't help us. Having said that, we were initially quite negative. We were shocked. We sure had this crazy, this is going quite well. Why would you want to do this? Of course, it actually worked out fine because we just moved on to a new PE house. And every time, one of the benefits, I think, of going down PE as a route is every time you effectively move PE houses, and they want to move. So you know, they, they don't want to hold you for long term. They want to move you, whatever it would be, four years or whatever it might be in a typical kind of number. Every four years, you have a you know a capital event and you can entirely restructure the equity holding of the business and you can give equity you, you, the existing owners will be paid out in shares and loan notes potentially uh, and cash. And you have an entirely clean sheet for starting the new company, what you want the equity structure is. So you can bring on people quite quickly, you know, the, the rising stars who are really key to, you think, growing the next stage of the business, reward them with equity and option packages based upon future performance and all these kind of things. So it is quite a useful, useful technique to have that. And I guess it just accelerated that instead of thinking that at the four-year you know, thing we were aiming for, we suddenly had this capital event, people getting paid out, 
proved that the PE model works, people you know, getting nice some sizable chunks of cash coming back, and an investment, a whole new investment in the, the next era of PE. So it actually worked you know, pretty well for us, even though it wasn't something that we sought out at the time. I think that's a really interesting point, Nick, and it may just be my naivety, but but not one I had thought about or realized. Like you say, actually, it's not the case that when you you get PE involved, the shares are suddenly all swallowed up by the PE firm. That that restructuring point actually is, I suspect, a real benefit because the team does change, people move on, rising stars come in and up. And, and like you say, actually, that every turn with PE lets you restructure that. And it sounds like by the second time, everyone in the team was comfortable I probably should have asked this before, so I'm going to ask it just in case it's useful for for anyone listening. You mentioned, obviously, PE does have a reputation, rightly or wrongly, and you and the leadership team had done your research to get yourselves comfortable with it. At the time when the first firm got involved, you know, there was a hundred of you. Do you remember any of the things that you had to put in place to to manage that transition and, and I guess, culturally get the team comfortable to how you framed the IPO for Accenture. This wasn't the same as that. And actually, they weren't going to have to go and find or want to find new jobs in six months' time. How did you manage that with the team to keep them on that journey too? Well, I think the financial deal that we offered everybody was clearly very different from an Accenture one. Plus, to be honest, the shift from in Accenture was as much, probably more from changing from partnership to corporate structure as it was the IPO per se. And there was a, you know, everybody was saying just before the idea, this is all about stewardship. It's all about looking after the firm for the future generations. And they said, hang on, you're just selling it and keeping the cash. How is that keeping it for the future generations? Whereas in a corporate, I think people came on board knowing that I was the principal shareholder and the, and the other directors and so on. And everybody had some small shareholding, but it was relatively modest. So I think there was no change of expectations. We looked after everybody. They came away with a nice little cash chunk. Plus, they had shares in the new version. Everybody got a share in the new post-private equity world. It was a little bit unpopular with the PE guys at first. And we, over time, we did drop that later. But because it's just the admin hassle that it creates as you get more and more people, it's harder to it's harder to make that work. But people, I think, just felt that it, it wasn't, you know, we, we weren't walking off with all the cash. So there were good career and financial opportunities there. There was a nervousness. That's not to say there wasn't a nervousness, because I think there was a nervousness that it would change the culture, that having people on our board who were external wouldn't understand us and would make us make dumb decisions or whatever it was. So I think the jury was out at first, but I think we got the foundations right. Plus, because of the way we had incentivized everyone, people getting equity and options and so on, frankly, it was in their interest to hang around. And by the time they'd hung around because of that, then they said, actually, no, it hasn't really changed the culture of the business. We are what we were before. And then people built, you know, rebuilt that trust that it, 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 you know, it wasn't fundamentally a different, different company. We, we were the same as we always were. So, yeah, no, I think that transition from the, the broader employee base was relatively straightforward. I think what was harder maybe was transitioning from a management point of view and the disciplines of external shareholders. I think that that changed us for the better, probably. Uh, in fact, no, I'd say definitely, because when it was just really me as the principal shareholder and making, at the end of the day, the buck stopped with me, it was kind of easy to make decisions and I was comfortable with you know, the way we administered around the business. But a PE firm being external wanted a much higher level of reporting, discipline, control than we were used to. And I think they took us on that journey of teaching us how to do that a bit better. And frankly, make us spend more money 
on that side of the business, having a, a higher powered CFO effectively, which we'd never had before. You know, we always had an admin, an accounting team, and we had other admin people, but but not a you know a higher powered CFO effectively. So it took us on that journey, and it was painful. You won't deny it. Getting our you know our reporting processes, everything in place, you know, took quite a bit of work. But I think we were more professionally run for it. So yeah, that's something to that <laughs> a little bit painful, but but worth doing. I think some some great points, Nick, and and actually takes us to to where I was hoping to go next because one of the things that I was keen to talk to you about. We probably don't have time to go year by year in the the Alpha FMC journey, but I know you have some key principles that you held from founding the business to to when you you know you left last year, and maybe. I'll start by asking, because you mentioned with that first PE investor, you went from 100 to 200, I think you said in, in that two-year window. Obviously, if we take 10 years to 20 years, you went from 100 to 1,000. And I'd love to understand, pick either time frame or, or another if it's more relevant, but actually dig into some of those principles that really helped you do that. Looking back, what were some of those core overarching principles that, that enabled that growth? I guess the first thing is trying to decide what kind of business we were, what we were going to do, and almost critically in strategy, I think strategy is very important, is what we were not going to do. I think if you pick, you know, difficult industries and difficult focuses, that's going to make your life tough. And if you pick the right one, you make it life a lot easier for yourself. Asset management is great. One of the reasons being because there are lots of asset management clients. There are hundreds of asset managers out there. They're also very bright and very expensive people, and therefore they value bright and expensive people, and they want knowledge, and they, they're very interested in what all their competitors are doing. Now, all those are very useful features for consulting. If you look at some industries, there's a much smaller number of clients, which is which makes it a lot harder to get started in those, because, and also make it more volatile that you have big periods of great success with one client, lots and lots of projects, but then harder times. Whereas if you've got lots and lots of different clients, that can help you make it a more steady growth and have a bit less risk in the business effectively. So that's one. So we said asset management was our thing. And I think that was a good a good foundation of a, of a business. And we specifically didn't want to do other things because one of the things that Accenture didn't do so well was this point of recognizing over time that industry expertise. And it was almost a negative if you wanted to focus with no such thing as just doing asset management in Accenture at the time. So we said that we wanted to be that focus because clients were coming to us saying they wanted somebody who not only knew about asset management, they knew about dividend processing. You know, they, they wanted more expertise and more specialism, not less. So we said, no, we're, we're going to specialize. So we'll do any kind of project effectively in that industry, and we will be known as, as specialists in that industry. And the big four don't do that isn't a model. That's not the way they work. And what you effectively find is over time is if you're putting somebody forward for a project, you know, to a team of three people, and they've done 10 asset management projects each, and they're against the competition from big four, and they've done one, you look so much more experienced and knowledgeable, and you can talk so much better in that proposal process to the key issues than we could when we were less specialized. And to be honest, as a person, is that I found as an as a consultant, it was so much more rewarding when you weren't in the weekend, the run-up for us of trying to teach yourself something about what the heck the client did and what the project was all about. You know, you actually could, you knew you knew it before you went in. And that's, a, you know, it made consulting much more rewarding when you didn't always feel this terrible pressure to try and teach yourself the night before what the heck it was all about. So that focus was one of the key things. And I think that as a strategy has defined us to be different 
there were other a few other firms who were specialist in asset management and maybe i'm being slightly arrogant and and rude to them but i I just don't think they were quite our quality point so they were specialists but not punching on a par with the big four in terms of that cachet and brand and the quality you expect that comes with that because because there was a you know it was a great quality house did some great work and had super quality people so we were trying to have that quality point but specialism so that made us a bit different the other big plank for success i think is the culture that we set and looking after people at the end of the day people is what a consulting business is essentially when i look back at accenture did some great things had great quality people but having got those quality people didn't always perhaps look after them as well as they might and i set about i guess partly from my experience of getting made redundant i made i wanted to make a point of not doing that so it was partly and i have a little bit i had a little mentor to say is you know it's about recruiting the best the absolute top quality people looking after them like your family and kind of everything takes care of itself it's not quite that's not quite the only thing you need to do but that was a mantra we talked about and, and definitely some truth in that beyond that i think we wanted i wanted to create a, a real sense of inclusion i think businesses work best when everybody feels part of the business they're not just a resource to be deployed and moved around you know fungible resource to move from project a to project b they're a person and they want to feel part of something beyond i think consulting particularly is like that because we're a bit nomadic you go from client to client you might be going from city to city you need to feel that sense of belonging and part of the business so we really made a point of that of being open and our communication of what was going on we got together every month basically everybody the entire company would get together every month to talk about the business what was happening and so on and, and that people enjoyed that process to, to, to feel part of the growth of the company and people actually wanted to help in in managing the business. So when we were small, you know, who would look at? You know, does anybody know anything about marketing? Okay, well, why don't you look after marketing then? You know, okay, who knows who's going to look after recruiting? And people want to take management roles as well as their client roles to feel part of that growing the business. And people just loved it. And of course, we're working unashamedly. So frankly, working flipping hard and long hours but not because anybody was telling them they need to because they enjoyed it you know and it's part of the the fun of growing the business together another thing i think was creating a proper environment of teamwork i think i mentioned earlier about this idea sometimes it can you can feel competitive if there's some quotas around promotions which about it was a hateful idea the idea that some kind of quota so we, we didn't want any quotas or anything like that i wanted people to feel that they would collaborate with each other and work as a team not just on a project, but a cross project to help other projects out with their knowledge and expertise and not feel competitive. So we had no quotas, nothing like that. If we could promote so many people to direct, because sorry, there was no limit on, on how many people promote to any new level, because I knew that we would, you know, we, the work would, would come at that point, we would find, you know, find the opportunities. And so, for example, we didn't have any kind of bonuses which are tied to the individual in any way so everything's team oriented i created this concept of profit share so effectively i can't remember what the percentage i think when we started 40 percent of the profits of the business went into a pool which was shared across the team and it wasn't it wasn't equally shared each grade of person had so many units almost like a mini partner model in the sense you had so many units as a manager as a consultant had so many units and whatever the profit was, then take 40% of it, put it in that pool and shared it out amongst the team. So people then really, they wanted to know how the business was going. You know, they wanted it to grow. And we would each month, we would talk about that 
and people felt part of that journey and they had a sense that it was done immediately, but at the end of the year, there will be some financial reward as well as you know the, the satisfaction of doing that, which is quite helpful. We also had a, a fun little thing that we would each month after our company meeting, the company meeting started about six o'clock or whatever, when people get back from the clients, we probably have a couple of hours of business till eight o'clock, then we go for dinner somewhere and we would literally base our choice of restaurant based on if we had a good month or not. So in a good month, we'd go to a Michelin star restaurant and have a great meal. And then we had a bad month, we'd go to McDonald's. And it became a bit of a joke, you know, where we were going this month and how we were doing. And it created a, a kind of interest in the business and a keenness to make it successful, which, which you know, was 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 a lot of fun. And, and again, making consulting fun again. I think in my early days, consulting was fun. And I think over time, it became a little bit of a grind. So we wanted to recapture you know, not, not just entirely on a professional basis, but that's what the way the life we wanted to live. You know, we wanted to work with people that we enjoyed spending, you know, with spending time with. Uh, actually, maybe a quick segue into that, which is that it was another thing. It was not just the best people in terms of their academics, in terms of their knowledge. I was absolutely adamant that we were not going to have any people part of the business who were not people we wanted to spend time with. So being a good egg, nice person, somebody who will collaborate was an essential part of that. And I think partly because we had good people like that already, that engenders more people like that to want to come and join you. You know, our biggest weapon in recruiting was not anything corporate. It was the it was the people in the business. So you, you line them up with their peers and to talk about their experience in Alpha, that was the best ever selling tool that we ever had, persuading people to come on board. So again, we I think we were we were started off with a good intake of people we were getting in, but in the case of where we did have a few people who did not gel well in the business, ultimately we did take the difficult decision. And I remember one of the directors, one of our recruiting mistakes, frankly, who was quite successful in terms of bringing the business. We took the difficult step of after he couldn't adjust and fit to the culture that we wanted, I, I actually let him go. And I think that sends a message to people about, uh, you know, about the kind of person and the kind of behavior that you want in the organization. And I think, again, that you know, morale definitely took a, an uptick <laughs> at, that, at that point. You know, that was, that was seen as living. We'd already said that, but when you actually follow it through, as opposed to take the revenue, that was seen as a positive thing. There is a lot in there, Nick, and I think we'll, we'll cover off various parts of that for the rest of the conversation because so many learnings. And, and actually, that last one, I think it's really powerful because it's often quite easy if someone is a bad cultural fit or, or more so they're bad at the job or they're not to your standard, that, that's quite an easy decision. But it sounds like that in that case, you, you had to make the hardest of decisions, which is they are good for the business commercially, but culturally and in the long term, they are bad. And I think, you know, really a really powerful example of living that culture as well. Not sure we always got it right, but in that, that individual case that I'm thinking, God, that was a good decision. I can think of somebody else that we left it far too long. We only really found out because you don't always know what's happening within the team, particularly as the business gets bigger. You know, you, it's harder to stay in contact with everybody and really get that feeling of the business. But we had another individual who, after we'd finally he'd gone we found a, quite a toxic culture that was hidden in his immediate social group and you know that we didn't like so i think the earlier you can find out about those things the better one one thing that was quite helpful in that and i've always felt is helpful is making sure that what people say to you in public in open forums so we'd have these monthly meetings and we encourage people to be critical and to 
say things that were going wrong, which is which is fab, by the way, if you could do that. If people genuinely tell you the problems, you can address it to you and either explain to why is it we do that. And they say, ah, now I understand why we do that. And they, you know, it, it lessens or goes away as a problem. Or you can say, crikey, they're right, you know, and we could change it. You know, and certainly as a smaller business, you can change it the following week and it's changed, right? And so getting people to talk to you and be comfortable with saying negative things is, is, is quite powerful. But that can be hard. And one of the things that we did from the early days is have, as soon as we had enough people to make this work, an anonymous feedback process, which asks quite difficult questions. You know, do you trust the leadership of the business? Do you think the business works in the interests of all, not just for the senior people? Do you believe we do good quality client work? You know, do you feel you're fairly remunerated for what you do? How is your work-life balance? All those kind of classic consulting questions and have that anonymous feedback and then comparing quite useful to compare what people are willing to tell you anonymously with what is open discussion that when you present results of the anonymous feedback back to people it it kind of says well hang on guys nobody we haven't talked about this clearly we're not doing well in this area why is that that helps people to speak up and that was always a good i think check and balance that we were being open with us and and, and honestly addressing the problems which I, i think that was big in making sure we've had very very low attrition rates and i think that was that was a you know a big part of it that nicely actually nick takes me to to a question i did want to ask because that open culture obviously you've just given a great example there and was was a core part of of alphas and, and is part of their continuing success i love by the way the michelin or mcdonald's restaurant choice as well i that might be something I, I bring into my own business. I'm sure others listening will have a think about that because it does create fun out of a very serious topic, but brings everyone into it. I'd be interested how you managed, and, and I'm going to jump to it around the sort of recession periods, the 2009, let's say, recession, because we're about to approach another recession. Who knows what it will look like, who it will affect. But you mentioned earlier, obviously, you know, asset management, Big sector, happy to pay for consultants, lots of clients to work for. There was a period where I imagine that wasn't the case around the financial crash of sort of that 2007-2009 period. And I'd love to know how you manage that open culture, because a bit to what you said around what you say in public or private or living your values, for some people listening, they may think, well, it's very easy if you're growing rapidly, you know, you're, you're accelerating 100 people in two years. It's very easy to be open because it's all positive. I'm sure there was some challenges there in that period. I'd love to know how you and the leadership team manage that to be both open, but also manage those concerns if people think, bloody hell, the financial market's falling into a black hole. Will Alpha still be here? Now, that might be a bit extreme and not what happened, but I'd, I'd love to know how you and the leadership team managed those concerns in that period. Probably the first very happy to chat about that. I guess the first caveat to say is that I don't think we were 100% tested on that. So I don't think we were ever at the absolute sort of position where Alpha was not going to exist. You know, we were not, we never had a cash flow crisis or anything like that. And that was partly, I think we had managed, we had a nice balance of work going on at, in those years, some larger client work that was kind of mid-flight where it was would have been extremely difficult for the client to lose at that point as well as the more shorter term more advisory kind of things which being discretionary yeah a lot of that dried up you know over that period so so i think we perhaps weren't tested as well plus when we were again if you get the other stuff right you know if you are adding the value of the client we, we were the last ones to go so they would get rid of all the other consultants before us so actually oddly 
that difficult period was was ultimately very good for us because a lot of other consultancies struggled more than we did. So although we didn't shrink, we probably held steady over that period. We didn't grow, but we didn't shrink. And then we came out roaring after that and grew very quickly again. So it worked all right. So we, we probably weren't as tested as some people, but it was painful and we were worried. And we we had some loss making months or whatever. So it wasn't it wasn't straightforward. But I think our we wouldn't have changed our ethos, which I think is that if you there's probably some a bigger fear of the unknown than the known. And people can see the writing on wall, they can see the problems, and they assume that there's something being worse being done about it if you don't talk to them. So we did maintain full openness, and we would share literally the entire PL of the business every month. So we, there were no, it was, it was, it was very, very, very open in terms of what, what we were doing. And I think people just valued that because they they knew where we were. We knew that there was nothing horrible in the, you know, so that we weren't talking about. There's also this other strange thing, of course, in consulting when you do go through a difficult time. Your client is because your clients are going through a difficult time, so nobody's hiring anyway. So there. <laughs> There is a little bit, unless you lay people off, which you know, is obviously going to be a very last resort, and, and you shouldn't really, you should never have to do that because if you maintain your good discipline of letting go the people who really you know weren't the right fit for the business, you shouldn't ever ever have to lay anybody off. Then I think it's just a matter of battening down the hatches and accepting that it's not going to be great. You know, the returns to the shareholders, me in that in that era or whatever, aren't going to be there, but that doesn't matter. The key thing is keep a team together, keep the expertise together, keep the clients happy. And you know that however long it is, maybe it's a year, maybe it's two years, that that will all change and we'll be back in the in the upcycle again. I think there's there's a lot in there, Nick. I appreciate you. You may not have been as tested as many as much as others, but what you said there around that known versus unknown, I think is really powerful. And, and you're quite right. It is human nature, isn't it? It's, even if we know something's going to be uncomfortable, if we know it, it is much. it feels a lot less worse than if you have something unknown and you you know we all do it don't we we build things up in our mind and just because i i don't know many firms who do it and i'm curious that sharing of the full PL was that something you did from proverbially day one was that something that you and the management team brought in at a certain point because that again is something i think fairly unusual in our industry partly you need the reporting to be able to do it when you're at a certain scale but actually the decision to be that open when did that start? And I assume it's linked back to the values, but why specifically sharing the PL monthly? Yeah, it was literally day one. So it's me and accounting software and a spreadsheet or whatever from day one and, and stayed like that for probably longer than it should have done. But yeah, I think it was just about that feeling of inclusion and ownership. If you can get people as a business owner and as a, as a manager, you want to grow the business. Obviously, you want to see that, that financial results. And therefore, your your task is to get people excited and keen in exactly the same thing that you are. So we did that both through that mechanism and through them sharing in the water. So, so again, we just did a lot to make sure that all our objectives and you know and goals were aligned together. So we were all trying to achieve the same thing, which again helps teamwork, collaboration. When you're all trying to do the same thing, then it's a great place to be and it's exciting, and everybody's getting you know, gets behind it. No, it makes a lot of sense. And yes, particularly today, it's amazing what you can do with some accounting software and a spreadsheet. You know, the likes of Zero can do a lot of the management accounts for you, which is, I don't know if it was Zero at the time, but I suspect similar approach. We were QuickBooks. Was our- <laughs> yeah, QuickBooks is definitely still out there. I think Zero's come out of the last 10 years to catch it up, but they do the same thing, I guess. And within that, and, and again, this might just speak to your philosophy, Nick, but I, 
I'm interested for others who are starting or who own consulting businesses, because you mentioned earlier, and do correct me if I've misinterpreted this, by the time you sold the business, you had in the first round, you had 60% of the shares and you talked about giving 40% of profit to the team. So I'll, I'll infer there was a 40% share of profit, but also shareholding over that time. And just initial thought is that that feels quite a large amount. And some people who are listening might think, well, hang on, I've launched this consulting business. I'm not going to give away almost 50% of it. I'd be really interested to understand how you came to the decisions around that and the benefits you saw. Because again, it feels quite counterintuitive if you're an early stage business to give away that much. But I'm sure the same challenge happens when you're a late stage business. You know, the enterprise value is significant. You're giving a lot of that away. So Similar to the the PL question, sort of when did that come about and, and what was the rationale and the benefits you saw from it? So the PL thing was right from day one, because that was just the culture and ethos that I wanted to create around that feeling of shared reward. Again, partly from where I'd come from. I wanted to make sure make sure we had that. But also there was a so there was a business point to it as well, which is, you know, when a starting up on a new venture, when a consulting business is going well, it's a very profitable, right? It's super profitable business when when your utilization levels are high and you can afford to pay fantastic salaries, bonuses, whatever. But when things are leaner, it's it's not so profitable, clearly. You know, once you're getting down to 50% utilization or something, it's it's going to be painful. So actually by doing that profit share, it kind of evened that out a bit in that when things are going well, people were laughing, taking home great you know, piles of cash. But when things are leaner, the business wasn't quite in such pain because you're just back to the base salary. So the the way we structured the remuneration from the beginning was that we would be competitive on base with the big four and the profit share was was all upside effectively. So yeah, when things were going well, people were doing much better than they were doing if they were with a, with a big four. We had less benefits. We weren't quite so good on the pensions and benefits. So, you know, that was all in the early days, a bit complicated, whatever. So we probably were quite lean on that side, but giving people got lots of cash. But yeah, the, the business could afford it, and it was going well. So again, it reinforced it. The whole thing seemed to reinforce itself and and work well on the on the X. So that was on the profit share. So that was pre before you get into what's you know is then shipped to the shareholders on the shareholding. So I, when Nick came on board as the first as the second shareholder, he took ten percent of the equity, and I was ninety. And then as we recruited people over time or promoted people, they got, uh, you know, shareholding. And I gradually effectively diluted my shareholding, selling my shareholding to sort of create that that equity for the for, for future generations. Yeah, that worked really quite well. At the end of the day, people have to believe, you know, that it's fair and that they're getting an attractive, exciting package, which again, you can tie to their performance and all these kind of things. Which we, which we did. And I think that was a very, very successful model. And some of the people that came on board as part of that, you know, they're still with the business. And they, they're really what's driven the business forward. So I think I can take some credit for some of these things we maybe talk about around the culture and getting us on some fertile ground and with some good practices and maybe even some good rootstock that we started with. But in terms of driving the business forward, it's the guys that came along after me, who really driven the business forward. One of those, I'll, I'll mention, Ewan Fraser, who would maybe be a good guy for you to have on in the future. So he he joined the business two years, three years, three years in maybe. And then he took over from me as CEO. So he's you know, he's been doing the CEO role for 10 years now. 
and he's really driven that forward. He's br- brilliant and a better CEO, frankly, than I would have made. So uh, yeah, he's he's done a fantastic job. He's by the way now standing down. We have a new CEO staff who will be taking over in March. So yeah, the generations move on, but it's yeah, it's getting. You want to attract the absolute best people, and you want to make it exciting and remunerative for them to be successful, because that's what we all want. And I, and I think you d- don't be greedy and try and keep too much. Would be my advice. I think some great advice, Nick, and and all links back to, like you said, that culture you wanted to build from the start, the the fairness, everyone feeling like they're playing a part, and and all of these things obviously have played their part in that, which has led to Alpha being the the thousand person consultancy it is today. And and yes, I mean, would love an intro to you, and so maybe we catch up on that afterwards because yeah, I've done it with other consultancies where you you have part one and part two with the different leaders. And I always think it's fascinating hearing the the different perspectives on the same growth journey. So we'll we'll catch up on you and after this. And I'd say probably one of my my last questions around this, Nick, and if actually this is something I should ask you and later, stop me. But a lot of the things we talked about, like the town halls, the McDonald's, et cetera, I may be wrong on this, but those sound like they work when you are at the smaller end. So let's say they're sort of up to 100 people. I'd love to know how you and the leadership team work to keep that culture as you scaled to the thousand, because with fast growth comes new people, comes lots of people. And and I've not done it myself, so I'm inferring, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I suspect that creates a number of challenges. Some being, well, you, Nick, as the leader and you and as the leader, you're further away from the shop floor, potentially. The other side is actually you've got, you know, if you're hiring 100 people in two years, that's 100 people you've got to teach the culture to. And I'd just be really fascinated how has that sort of the over that last decade, anything you've had to put in place or, or do differently to ensure you keep those cultural foundations and keep the sort of leadership finger on the pulse of what's going on with the team as well? Yeah, I think there are genuine challenges as you grow. It's, it's much harder to keep that going when you're larger than the, you know, the sense of excitement and, and, and growth and, and kind of family feeling when you're when you're smaller. But I think that doesn't make any of the less important. So it's just a matter of what tools, techniques, approaches can you use to try and keep that sense of smallness and excitement when you are larger. And some of it happens automatically in, in, in that you know we are physically in groups. So I couldn't even tell you how many offices we have now, but it must be 30 offices or something worldwide. And so each one of those, you, you can have exactly that same, particularly when you set it up in the early days, you you, know, you can get together with the people in the, I think we've got a, a, one in Texas, in Austin one now, for example, you know, so just there's probably only a few people there. You get that sense of, of excitement and newness uh, coming in. It is harder when you're when you're larger. So for particularly the London office, which will be still our, I think, still our largest office. But you need to find ways of, of doing things. So breaking things into smaller groups that you get together socially to make people because people want to feel part of a social grouping as well. That is a big part, particularly when you're younger. You know that that certainly I, I wanted part of that social grouping as well as as well as professionally. So finding ways to do that, and also dare I say all catering for as you get larger catering for a, a broad diversity of interests i think when we started we were all kind of quite liked our food and and sort of nice bottles of wine but not everybody enjoys that same thing so finding other things and interests that you can pull people together who've got like-minded interests who might be interested in opera or whatever that, that you you create a an opportunity to gather and probably some of the you know public you know company funded to bring people together because we're all busy but we're quite like-minded people enjoy spending time with each other to do stuff together so finding those those techniques but also 
you're right. You know, there's, I think there still needs to be communication from the top to everybody, which is not going to be possible in person. But I think it's maintaining an authentic voice, which is personal from the top down and giving your own perspective, finding those routes to people. And some of it might have to be emails, but also Zoom calls and all whatever it might be to get your personal voice out there and perspective, because people like to feel that there is somebody in charge somewhere who knows what they're doing and have respect and confidence in that person. I remember learning a lesson back in Accenture around the value of strategy and leadership. Sometimes it's not actually about the strategy or the leader, but it's giving people a sense that there's a strategy and a leader. And people people hate it if they don't if they can't see a credible leader and and a, a belief in a strategy, even if the truth is it's a rubbish strategy. People hate it. So I think ignore that at your peril. I think those are important ingredients. And, and, and even if you're not sure, just just communicate and get it out there and, and get get people behind it. I think some great advice. And again, I really like, as, as you explained, while yes, Alpha is now a thousand people, those, those hubs, those offices, those social groups, those committees, it enables you to, to keep that small feel on a large scale coupled with you know, your leadership point, I, I guess, comes back to the, the known versus unknown, doesn't it? Is you'd rather know that someone is leading and thinking about it, even if they're not sure what it is, or you're not sure it's the right thing, then you would not hear from them and fill that void. And I think that's another point that's come loud and clear through this conversation. I think one last area, Nick, and we, we touched on it in terms of investment in private equity, but I wanted to, to sort of hold this for the end in part because it it nicely finishes the chronology, and I'm I'm a sucker for chronology deep down, which is the IPO, and it's something again we've touched on many things. I think Alpha and yourself and the team have done differently, and I think IPO is one of them. Obviously, we've talked about Accenture, which is a well known IPO, but there there aren't a whole lot of other consultancies. I can probably count on one hand, and I'm I'm not the sort of oracle on consulting, but the ones I know of, I can probably count on one hand how many have IPO'd. And so I'd love to get your experience on that. And maybe we start with what led to you considering an IPO as an option, because you'd had two successful PE rounds. Presumably, you could have kept that going for a while. Why IPO? Yeah, a number of drivers for that. And that was initiated by us and before we got to the four-year point or whatever with our second round PE. And there were a number of factors, I think. One is with PE, although you do have this great reset every so often, that reset, you never quite know when it's going to come because it comes when both sides are ready to to move on and you have to go through that whole PE cycle again. It is So there's an element of the attraction of your equity to your team is predicated on when you think that next liquidity event is going to happen. And that's not entirely under your control. So I think the Nirvana, it is better if you can have a you know a secondary market effectively in your shares so that when people's restrictions fall off, they can actually turn that shareholding into cash. It becomes a more valuable asset if you feel that it's you know more easily turned into cash than waiting for some event that may or may not be coming. And, and when things are tough, frankly, uh, and you know a transaction may look quite quite far away and uh, that may be some of the time when you most want to, to use your equity as a, a as a retention tool so i think that was part of it i think going through a pe process it is painful you know i mean the ipo was painful as well but going through a pe cycle 
is a bit painful and disruptive for the management team to do that and people wondering you know what it might mean and so on and you're, you're going to have to do that every four whatever the number is every four years you're going to have to go through that and that's never ending the other thing which was beginning to weigh on me particularly and, and i know you and the rest of the team was the debt the debt side of it so in order to get the kind of returns that the pe guys market themselves at they want to take on debt to leverage their investment and consulting is a cyclical business you know it has its ups and downs for sure and you know if you've got a big saddle of debt around your neck and interest rates are going in the direction they've been going of late that servicing the debt can get flipping expensive so i think we were just nervous of that level of debt and each time you grow and you know you're taken on by a a bigger and bigger PE firm, the bigger and bigger amounts of debt. And we're talking a lot, you know, big sums. And it all comes with risk that, you know, you sign away your life with all these covenants, that what will happen if you can't meet your coverage, you know, your kind of interest coverage and all the other criteria and covenants that you put in when you go through, you know, PE exercise. And I think we just were too wary. We knew that or felt at some point that that level of debt was, was a worry. And an IPO structure gave us the opportunity to to be totally debtless as we are today. So, so we, we obviously have a you know banking facility, but but we we don't have any any long term debt. And I and I think that's a very comfortable position, good position to be in for a company. It never was a challenge for us in our PE period, but if we had had a really bad downturn, you know, what would have that led to? I don't know. We never we never found out because we never tested in that way. Well, the question is how liquid can your shares be i think when you when you become publicly traded and it's i wouldn't say we found that easy in the early days i think we had less liquidity than we would have liked i think getting to the side that we're at now we're getting that i think we're probably at a level a pretty comfortable level of liquidity now we have good secondary market two different brokers and lots of people who cover us on research and so on and we have increasing numbers of retail investors that hold us as well as the institutions which interesting because their institutions are quite interesting. We started off with hundreds of institutions, and the trouble is they don't want to sell. If you're doing all right, they don't want to sell. So there's no liquidity because they don't want to sell. So all of a sudden you have this. You, know, you think obviously we haven't, which which can make if then somebody does finally want to sell a volatile share price and and and, and no real liquidity. Retail shareholders, although they're a bit fickle, do give you that more daily kind of a little bit more of the daily move in in the share house and turnover of shares and so on, which has been quite quite helpful so that liquidity i think is probably a key reason there's an in, another interesting thing in our case which is unique to alpha which of course the very people who are our clients are our shareholders because we work for the asset managers and investors so pretty much all our shareholders at some time if not now have been have been clients and when we did the ipo they all went to their you know their sponsors of alpha and said Think of investing in this company. What do you make of it? Who and they seems they gave us a pretty good rep. So that was a very helpful thing in our case, which might be a little bit unique in our case, but it was a nice little, little tie-up. Probably quite unique. Also, I suspect rather helpful, Nick, if your your clients and shareholders are the same people because they have a vested interest in your business succeeding, which is no bad thing. Exactly. Different parts of the organisation typically, but yeah, still no bad thing to have that have that link here. Yeah. And you mentioned something there, and, and just really because I'm less familiar with it, but I, I hadn't thought of it. So I'm, I'm sure others listening may not have either, but that liquidity point, because again, 
for those of us who aren't experts in, in the financial market, you hear of an IPO and, and you think that suddenly that's like any big share or ETF you might buy and sell, you know, you trade openly. Um, your point on liquidity is quite interesting. And maybe I'll ask it looking back or just from your knowledge in the industry, for anyone listening, almost is there a sort of certain size of consulting firm where you need to be before you have that liquidity? Because I imagine if you IPO, but the market's illiquid, there's probably more downsides than there are upsides in terms of the communication to your team, etc. What is that tipping point? Was it actually just a time in the market? Or was there a size and scale of alpha where actually that liquidity started to to open up? But the first thing is, is yeah, the at what point do you become of interest to institutional shareholders? So certainly a, a point at which that is, and I'm not sure I even know where that point was. When we did the second round of PE, we had talked to a few people and we just got the impression that an IPO was too soon and that we needed to go and IPO, we needed to go PE again. I think with hindsight, I'm not so sure. We talked to people since and they said, why why did you do that? You know, why did you give so much of the upside away effectively to outsiders, which is which is what you do with PE. You know, you're giving quite a lot away. They make a lot of money out of you. And with hindsight, maybe we should have thought gone IPO in that in that second round. Because I think with hindsight, we were probably big enough back then. Liquidity, I think liquidity is going to be a challenge. I think that's never going to be easy in the early stage. It takes time to build that. You know, you've got no reputation on the market. There's a lot of IPOs that come and then fail and don't do well. So you're an unknown quantity. But if you keep turning in the numbers, you know, we tell everybody, just don't worry about the share price. The share price will do what it does. If you keep turning the numbers, the share price will sort itself out over time, which is, I know that people don't like to hear that message, but it is true. It, it takes time, but it, but, it, but it is true. So liquidity, what you do in the early days when you when there isn't a very good secondary market in your shares, and I think it will be unrealistic to expect there to be, is you have periodic placings. So you agree once a year, twice a year, whatever it is, that that there will be a, you know, we'll, we'll try and create a shareholding selling event. And it's typically people wanting to sell, people who've got their shares or options at some time in the past who want to liquidate their buying and you upgrade the house or whatever it might be. They're wanting some cash or just wanting to diversify their risk a little bit if they've got quite a lot of shares. So just creating that opportunity. So you go to the broker and say, look, we're looking to sell probably this kind of a level you know, can we find shareholders and they will go to shareholders, existing shareholders and say, look, this is what we're doing, which they did like the management would like to sell some of the shares. Is there interest around us? What kind of price would you? And it's usually a slight discount to what the market price, but not a big, not a big discount. And yeah, canvas the shareholders and then try and do a placing effectively. So that that's what you do in the early days to give periodic liquidity. It's not as ideal as a secondary, you know, a constant secondary market, but it's a lot better than a, a possible four years time. If, you know, if things goes well, you've got this 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 mooted transaction. So um, yeah, it worked all right. Difficult times. You know, we we didn't at every time got all the interest we wanted from shareholders. They we were a bit of an unknown quantity in the early days, but people stuck with that and understood that situation. Again, back to communication, and uh, I think we're out we're out of that period into into proper liquidity now. I think. Fantastic. Well, and Nick, I think a nice place to start to draw our conversation to a close. And I'm sure there was plenty more we could cover. And this might be where the Ewan conversation comes in, or maybe we will do a round two at some point, Nick, because unpacking 20 years of building a consultancy in, in an hour and a half is is no mean feat. But thank you for, for everything you have shared. And I just have 
two last questions. And these are ones I ask all my guests before finding out where people can learn more about you and and connect to you. So the first question is is about books. And I'll caveat this, Nick, with I've learned more and more people actually don't go to books for their source of information. Some it's podcasts, it's news articles, it's journals, but I'll ask it as books and let you take it how you want, which is over your journey with with Alpha, what, what is the book or books you've you've either had has had the biggest impact on you or you found yourself giving to others most and and why is it it is a book actually and i guess it shows my age and i'm less slightly embarrassed to admit it but it's i think called the one minute manager that you've ever heard of it it's a very ancient have. now but I, I give that to quite a lot of people very simple very quick read you know it's not one of these big complicated books is it? it's tiny but there's some really good messages in it and one that re- really stuck with me in a way when you've got a new person working for you catch them doing something good you know make that point to catch them doing something right and good and i would even go further i'd go further than that is even when if somebody's not doing what you want but you can sort of pretend that they kind of have pretend that they have and, and, and praise them for doing something that you wanted them to do that they didn't do and they think oh i'm going to do that in the future it's, it's a, the carrot's a heck of a lot more powerful than the stick and and that was just, that just resonated with me that one and i and i've used that one quite successfully quite a lot so little silly things like that so yeah i've given that one out quite a lot it's a good recommendation i do love those sort of shorter books particularly ones like the one minute manager that have stood the test of time um because in today's world so i also am a big book reader nick but so many books are published I read somewhere, I can't remember who it was, but they wait a year before reading the bestsellers of the previous year, because by that point, the best have filtered to the top and the the rest has has dropped. And I think One Minute Manager, I've not read it, but I do. It's one of those names that comes up alongside books like Who Moved My Cheese, the sort of shorter but really powerful books. And then the very last question, and this could be a recap, it could be a new piece of advice, but you have three people in front of you. And to use a sort of parlance, I suspect, I don't know the quite grade structure in, in alpha, but to use the sort of Accenture grade structure, one is an analyst, so just coming into the industry. One is a manager, so that kind of mid-level in the industry. And then one is approaching partner. And the question's quite simply, what one piece of advice would you give to each? So I think for the new person just starting out, I think I would say, give it everything, you know, and, and more. You've got to, if consulting's a tough gig, very rewarding in so many ways. But if you're going to, if you're going to be successful, you're going to get the most out of it. You've really got to go in for it fully. So yeah, give it everything and, and look at the people above you and that you think are really good and you admire and they're doing a great job and the clients love and you like to work for and copy them. I think that's always good. And actually, maybe thing for all levels that I've always tried to do is try and think about what you know my boss is thinking. What 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 are they thinking about? What are they worrying about? What's what's their job all about? And if you can put your thinking on their level, you know, you're able to engage a bit with them on that topic and 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 you learn more quickly from them and they respect you because they think, wow, this guy's already thinking beyond what the job is doing is in thinking at the next level. So yeah, that's always a helpful one I found. Where's next? So manager, I probably, whether it's exactly at manager or not, but the managing people thing, I think I would pick up on around that level. And it, to my embarrassment, it took me a, a while, I think, to click with managing people. I wasn't very good at it at first. I think I was overly concerned with Gantt charts and tasks and allocating things for people to do and telling them what to do uh, in the early days. And I think it was only about that kind of 
five years in or whatever, where I kind of had an epiphany and realized that wasn't what it was all about. And and to pick one thing about managing the real people side of it, I think it's being on their side is what is most, the most important thing of all is you're on their side. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't be critical. It doesn't mean you can't tell them off they do something wrong. It doesn't mean you can't give them hard messages. But if people genuinely believe that you're on their side, you will give it the right way. You say, look, I know this didn't go very well, but why didn't it? Or maybe, maybe even the complex state is, I just don't think consulting is the right business for you. I think you'd be better off doing people respect it and believe in it if they if they feel that you're on their side and trying to be helpful. So that that's my people one at the manager level, perhaps. And then partner one, I guess the one of the things that really says whether you're going to make partner or not is sales at the end of the day, isn't it? And we're brought up in a culture in consulting, I think, which is no mistakes. Everything must go perfectly, right? The client must be perfect. You know, this this kind of swan on the swan on the pond and all that kind of the paddling legs and all that kind of stuff. So it's, everything's got to go perfectly. And I I was absolutely that and a bit of a control freak and wanted everything to be perfect. But sales doesn't work. Sales does not work that way in my experience at all. I think what you need to do is you just need to try a lot more things and be imperfect at times. And I think, you know, I got his position and I still probably am a bit like this, which is that I'd rather have things not fail than have more things succeed, if you see what I mean. Because that's just the way I've grown up and perhaps, you know, through the first 10 years, 15 years of my career was was everything was all about, about as risk management and not having things go wrong. But sales is, is about getting out there, it's talking to more people, trying more things on and not taking it as a failure when somebody says, sorry, Nick, I'm not really interested. That's just another interaction along the route to success, which is you've built a relationship with them. You've had that conversation. Maybe you've learned more about why they didn't want to do that. You, you thought it was a fantastic idea thinking you could do, help them. They thought it was a terrible idea. But you've learned from that and you'll be better on next time, either with them or with somebody else. So just learning to change that whole mindset from lack of failure to to, to lots of success is, is difficult. And I think one thing we did at Alpha successfully is had professionals come and help us with that because it's a big it's a big shift and not everybody can even make that transition. I only partially made it myself probably. So it's changing that mindset from that to, to that plenty and, and getting out there and accepting not taking it personally when people don't want to buy from you don't take it personally just just get out there again i think great advice for all all three stages and, and that point on sales really powerful and completely agree nick and, and if we had longer we'd dive into it because you are right it it's the area that many in our industry are challenged with because of the life they've led up to there where you do grow up with mitigate failure, don't fail. You know, from we talked about university ahead of this, from university to consulting and, and as you climb, that sales is a real shift. So I think your advice there is really powerful. The other thing is it's also getting over that sales isn't a dirty word. There's this kind of implication of the kind of, you know, the second hand you know, car salesman or whatever. Somehow it's a bit dodgy, isn't it, trying to sell something? And and it isn't. If you do consulting sales, right, it's not selling. It's enabling people to buy what they want. And that's the transition you need to make and not feel it's somehow a grubby thing you're doing to people at all because you're not. You're just creating the right atmosphere to people to get what they want anyway. I think a great point to highlight, Nick, and you're right. I think, you know, funnily enough, I grew up with uh, sales being the person who interrupted you at dinner time to sell you some energy or, or whatever it was, you know, back when we had mainline phones. And I think 
actually that mindset shift is a really big one. And it is the other side of the coin that you described is part of it's accepting you're not going to sell everyone and that's still success. And part of it is getting comfortable with what sales is. And like you touched on, actually, it's ultimately helping people achieve what they want to achieve. And that that's the core of good consulting. You know, every, everyone talks about benefits, realization and delivering value. Sales is finding something where you're going to deliver more value than you cost. So everyone wins. And actually, if you frame it like that, it, it becomes much, much more palatable to to a consultant, I think. So Nick, this has been brilliant. Thank you. Um, the only thing that's left to ask, if, if people want to find out more about yourself or, or are curious about Alpha FMC, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? Yeah, I guess LinkedIn's probably the easiest one. I think Nick Alpha brings that up very easily, I think. So yeah, not quite as good on my LinkedIn as I was, but, but pretty good. So I'll certainly try and respond to anybody who drops me a line on there. Amazing. Well, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. It's been great to, to learn the journey of Alpha FMC. And all that's left to say is all the best for the rest of your week. Great. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Nick. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.